the cartoonist, social activist, educator, and sometimes rapper, Keith Knight. Keith Knight is the creator of the comic strips The K Chronicles and Nightlife, as well as the social political single panel comic Think. Knight's art has appeared in various publications, including The New Yorker, The Washington Post, The Daily, Daily Cause, San Francisco Chronicle, Medium.com, uh, Ebony, ESPN The Magazine, LA Weekly, Mad Magazine, and The Funny Times. Uh, Knight is also the co-creator, co-writer, and an executive producer on the Hulu streaming series, Woke, which was inspired by his comics and life in San Francisco. And if you don't know that show, don't be scared away by the title. Go watch it. You will not regret the decision. Knight and his works have been honored with numerous awards, including the 2022 Master Cartoonist Award at uh, CXC Comic Fest, uh, 2020 Rose Door for Best International Comedy for Woke, a 2015 NAACP History Maker Award, the Comic-Con Inkpot Award for Career Achievement in Comics, the Harvey Kurtzman Award for Best Comic Strip for the K Chronicles, as well as several Glyph Awards for Best Comic Strip. Tonight, Keith Knight will speak to us about his slideshow, The Intersection of Art and Social Justice. Please join me in welcoming Keith Knight. Thank you. Um, I appreciate that wonderful introduction, and I appreciate the Portland Timbers a scarf that um, uh, I think it was Melissa's husband got for me. So thank you for this. Um, I, I love soccer scarves. Um, I was going to show a trailer of the show if you haven't been, I mean, if you're not familiar with it, but we'll we'll probably just show it after, and uh, so you guys can get into it. So, um, you know, uh, I say this every time. Uh, <laughs> people always, you know, they say like, Who? I've never heard of this guy. Like, what? <laughs> what's going on? Why does he have a TV show? Who is this person who's done these comics? And and seriously, like most people don't. I'm like a Z-level celebrity. Like, so, you know, like nobody usually knows me, but there's always one person who's super psyched that I'm here, and so Tamar, where are, where are you? Yes, thank you, thank you. There's always one person who's super psyched. Oh, maybe two, so I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. I'm <laughs> so to the rest of you, I'll, I'll just try to explain why this is. <laughs> Since time and not a year and a half ago, a lot of readers have been asking me this question. Has this once macho he-master gone all soft now that I'm a married man? The answer is yes, I've gone all soft, soft and supple. It's true, the best thing about getting hitched is being able to use all your wife's girly products in the bathroom, stuff I wouldn't be caught dead buying in public. Okay, let's see, we got some anti-crab ointment, anal wart remover, and a peach melba loofah scrub. Shh, not so loud with the loofah scrub. That's right, people, no more scrubbing the nether regions with lava soap for me. We've got rosemary and aloe vera eucalyptus leaves infused with the hibiscus shampoo, organic sea kelp and lamb semen exfoliating wash, colloidal oatmeal and placenta enema. <laughs> Honestly, y'all, using this stuff does make a difference. A lot of folks have been noticing. Gee, your skin feels terrific. 
So that's what I do in a nutshell. Uh, this is my autobiographical cartoon, The Cave Chronicles, and I've been doing it for over 30 years now. <laughs> it's been a long, long time. And I basically just write about stuff that happens in my life. And, you know, clearly it doesn't all happen, but like I usually take something uh, mundane in life and then spin it off into some crazy thing. And um, uh, I just want to say I appreciate um, the ASL guy here. And uh, we homeschool our kids. And my 14 year old is taking a sign language class right now. So. I hope he's watching, and I hope he's he's learning, because because uh, this guy is going to be worked over. <laughs> so um, I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts, in the '70s, and in the '70s, uh, Boston, Massachusetts, um, there was one picture that sort of encapsulated Boston, Massachusetts. So I don't know if you're familiar with this, but this is sort of an iconic Boston photograph, and. Um, I didn't know a whole lot about it when I was a little kid. I just knew it was about the busing protests that happened in the 70s. But clearly, you see a lot of white people uh, and one guy with an American flag, and he's about to stab a black man in a suit uh, being held there. So <laughs> this is the this, this sort of environment I came up in. And I never had a black teacher from grades one to 12. Um, and there was a, a comic that I did on um, a whole, um, there was an, an analysis that if uh, black children have a one black teacher, just one between ages uh, from kindergarten to 12th grade, their likelihood of going to college goes up 32%. By having just one black teacher, that's it. So my first black teacher wasn't until I was um, a junior in college. And it was an American literature teacher. And that American literature teacher, um, he assigned us um, Ralph Ellison, Richard Wright, Maya Angelou, and James Baldwin. And when someone brought up, uh, you know, why are you giving us all black writers? He said, I'm giving you all American writers. This is an American literature class. And my head exploded right then. Because here was a guy who was working within the system and subverting the system at the same time. And it was at that moment where I realized, like, I got more books as a kid growing up, more books where the animals were the protagonists uh, than people of color. So I was getting books like Jack London books where dogs were the heroes and, and Animal Farm where the animals were the, the subjects and no people of color. And I can't tell you how damaging that is. And we were getting a history where I felt not represented. And so this thing of uh, belonging, you know, as a young black man growing up in America, as, as black kids, as Asian kids, as, as gay kids, as disabled kids, you don't feel like you are a part of the American story. 
And then you graduate college, um, high school, and then you spend the rest of your life sort of unprogramming yourself and sort of learning everything that you should have learned those first 18 years. And James Baldwin has a great, like, he has a great quote about that. Like, he goes, I have to, I had to psychologically unlearn all the stuff that was fed to me. And then, like, learn that my life has value and that, w that my people had value and built this country. And I I'll tell you this. After that American literature class, my comics went from being about keg parties to being about what it's like to be a black man growing up in America in the 1980s. This is dedicated to that one black kid, The Cave Chronicles by Keith Knight. This is dedicated to that one black kid who lives in that tiny ass town off the highway in the middle of nowhere. This is dedicated to that one black kid who was not into hip hop in high school. Black Sabbath's not black, you know. This is dedicated to that one black kid who gets used as the reason why someone isn't a racist. I can't be prejudiced. My mom invited one to my 13th birthday party. This is dedicated to that one black kid with hair people want to touch all the time. Back off. Is it like a Brillo pad? This is dedicated to that one black kid who gets told they're not really black. Yo, man, brothers don't do what you do. Hey, it's a compliment coming from me. This is dedicated to that one black kid who always gets asked by white folks why they can't use the N-word. Why ask me? I don't use it. But you could if you wanted to. This is dedicated to that one black kid who wonders if they measure up to the myth. This is dedicated to this one black kid. So this is one of my most popular prints, and it's really black people bingo. Like, black folks will look at that um, uh, poster and they'll go, oh, yeah, that happened to me. Oh, oh that happened to me. And then, oh, bingo, and they go across. Um, I didn't know what microaggressions were when I wrote this comic, but this is the microaggression comic, and when I finally heard the term, I was like, oh, that's what it is. But this one black kid comic could be that one Latino comic, that one gay kid comic, that one disabled kid comic. Uh, we all have that experience of being the other and somehow, some way, and so, so many people who aren't black get this and, and understand it. And I think that's one of the great things about cartooning is, is it's a way to take complex issues and make them palatable for the masses in a very simple way. I feel like cartoonists are the, the uh, court jesters of modern day. And, and cartooning is really like, I think it's the very first medium. Uh, cave paintings are cartoons. Hieroglyphics are cartoons. I think the first language we learn, we were talking about it in a class today, is like, you know, who taught you what a speech balloon was as opposed to a thought balloon? You know, who taught you that, like, when someone's shouting, uh, you know, there's jagged edges to when they're screaming and stuff? No one, you just learned it yourself. And I think that as a cartoonist, you're trying to master that language. You know, we all know the language, but as cartoonists, we try to master it and, and come up with new stuff we can add to the language. And uh, it's very fascinating and fun to work within this medium. So in 1999, I was asked to do a, a different strip. Uh, 
and I wanted to do a strip that was the opposite of the Cave Chronicles. So I wanted to do something that was not uh, autobiographical, uh, one that was not multi-panel. Um, and so uh, <laughs> the opposite is a single panel taken from the news. So I came up with uh, Think, and Think, I mean, obviously it's ink with TH in front of it, uh, Think. Um, this is the logo I came up with, and what I love about the logo is it looks like late Charles Schultz Snoopy. If you look real close, um, the parentheses look like the ear, and the, eye, the dot and the eye look like the eye. And um, if, I could, if I was forced to draw Snoopy, I couldn't draw it as good as that looks like Snoopy. So, um, But I love Think because I'm able to take ideas that I can't flesh out into longer strips and then just do these quick shots. So this is the very first one I did. Denny's serving blacks since 1997, if signs told the truth. Now this is when Denny's was sued because they, weren't, they were making black people pay before they got their food. They were serving white folks who came in after them, uh, before them, and, and uh, it wasn't until a bunch of Secret Service guys in the 90s um, did a, a, had a suit against them. And apparently after that, be, they you know, became like, these this wonderful diverse company and all this different stuff but i haven't been in denny's in a long time you know uh, i'm a i'm a waffle house type of guy no I'm not, that's not true but have you seen the fight videos waffle house fight videos that last one with like the white girl blocking the it's amazing it's kind of crazy waffle house waffle house fight videos <laughs> I'm going to run through these really fast. You still have the baby, it's a boy. The exact moment radical black activist Thomas X realized that, yes, indeed, he was an Uncle Tom. <laughs> what was promised? 40 acres and a mule. What was got? 40 ounces and a pit bull. Uh, this just in. People have just released the, uh, police have just released the alleged description of the gunman who has been robbing the downtown area, terrorizing downtown area. <laughs> uh, please don't let it be a black guy. Please don't let it be a Middle Eastern guy. Ha! They'll never catch me. Ah, the power of white privilege. Um, all lives matter. Asterix. Uh, restrictions apply. See skin color for details. Um, so here's the deal with all lives matter. And I just want to get this, you know, and I'm sure you've heard this. Um, if I have a bumper sticker on the back of my car, that says, save the rainforests. It does not mean F the other forests. <laughs> it means the rainforests are getting cut down at a very quick rate, and we need to do something about it. So when I say Black Lives Matter, it doesn't mean screw everybody else, okay? It just, you just don't see people who white suffer to what Tyree Nichols went through, you know? And it doesn't matter the color of the police. It's the system that we're under that allows, do you think black policemen could do that to a white man? And did you see how quickly they were fired and how quickly they were charged, you know? Until we see that with white police officers, you know, this is not a just system. Um, Supreme Court leak. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, Roe versus Wade. Uh, is that? I need another beer. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is very small. I can't read that. All right. Uh, the penis monologues with Will Chamberlain, Jimi Hendrix, and Milton Berle. How was it? Way, way too long. This is for the older folks in the audience. Ask your parents. You're doing this because I'm black, aren't you? Oh, uh, now see, why do you always have to play the race card? So the race card, black on black crime, uh, get over it, it was a long time ago. Well, the, the, cops, the cops were black. These are all things that white people say when there's a, a we're trying to have a conversation that needs to be had, the most important conversation that America needs to have, which is the conversation about race in America. Uh, for far too long, the conversation about race has been dictated by when white people feel uncomfortable, which is 5.2 seconds. And then they start saying, well, what about this? What about that? What about this? And the, the thing is, like, you've got to get comfortable being uncomfortable. I know there's all these drugs out there now. It's like, oh, here, take this pill. You don't have to be nervous anymore. Everything's so No, it's OK to be uncomfortable. And we need to have these conversations, because that is what holds this nation back to being what it could possibly be. Uh, for far too long, the conversation has gone like this. One night at the old, the old gallery opening, frankly, I don't care if a person is black, white, green, purple, or, or brown. Yeah. Who the heck are all these green and purple folks white people are always talking about? The K Chronicles, if I might. <laughs> I'm sorry. I consider myself relatively open-minded, but I have to draw the line at purple people. I know this ain't PC, but purple people are nothing but barely civ civilized knuckle draggers. Believe me, I know. I sat next to one in second grade. When I was growing up, a purple family moved in next door, and the whole neighborhood started to smell like Fig Newtons. And I swear this one guy was hired at my job only because he was, well, you know. I heard green folks have three nipples. I think I'd better be going. Me too. <laughs> be careful walking back to your car. The purple people might get you. So, <laughs> so yes, unless Avatar is a documentary, there are no blue people, and there are no purple people, and there are no green people. We have to couch, unless you're at a Comic-Con. There are green people at Comic-Cons. So that joke doesn't go over at Comic-Con. But in reality, <laughs> There aren't these purple and green. And honestly, you would be scared shitless if someone came in and sat behind you that was all green or purple. So don't tell me that, you, that it doesn't bother you. And here's the other thing. Don't say you don't see color. That is not a compliment. That is not a, a, a like, I've had people say to me, you know, when I see you, uh, I, don't, I don't see a black person. And, and it's like, you don't realize how insulting that is. That it's like, you have to get rid of the idea that I'm black for you to feel comfortable and, and open and happy. You should be psyched 
that your, your, your friends, your family, your coworkers, your teachers are, are diverse. You should be psyched that you are able to, to have relationships with people that may not be just like you. So please embrace the idea of, of, and I'm not just talking about race, I'm talking about gender, I'm talking about age, I'm talking about class, I'm talking about religion. This pandemic has pushed us apart more than it has brought us together. And so we spend a lot of time online. It's easy to be mean to people online. It's not as easy to be cruel to people to their faces. And we need to spend more time having these conversations. And so hopefully when you leave here, and some of you have the privilege, most of you have the privilege to leave here and forget anything that I've said today anything, but there are some people in here who live this every single moment of their lives. I do. I do. And people say, oh, well, so why is it, why is it always going to be about race? Why is it always, why do you always have to make it about race? I didn't make it about race. America made it about race. America made it about race. Rich whites, back in the day, said, how are we going to protect our stuff from poor white people? We will convince the poor white people that they may have it bad, but at least they're white. And they have it better than the indigenous folks. They have it better than the enslaved Africans that we have there. In fact, we will deputize some of these poor white folks and have them track down escaped slaves. We will have them ride on horses and keep them all in check. And those overseers became officers. The very first police grew out of the slave patrols of the South. And I shouldn't say of the South, because the very first record of a slave patrol was in Charleston, Massachusetts. And, and as a person who lives in the South now, I was always reluctant to write about the South because I had never lived there. And you just hear, oh, well, at least we're not as bad as the South. People in the West, people in the North always say, well, at least we're not as bad as the South. We're all as bad as the South. This whole nation is, the, the reason why, uh, uh, you know, all these schools like Harvard, you know, have built these huge endowments, Harvard and Yale, their buildings were built by slaves. They, they owned slaves. They were able to build up wealth through them. And the reason why there were so many cheap workers that were brought up to the North is they could they could offer jobs that paid very little because people weren't getting paid anything down south. So the north and the west benefited from what was happening in the south. All right, so 2008, I made the biggest mistake of my life. I launched a daily comic strip. <laughs> a daily comic strip is this thing that appears in a newspaper. Um, a newspaper 
was this thing that people used to read every day. Um, <laughs> and it had all this news in it, and it had the weather, and it had like all this different stuff. Um, so I launched my strip in 2008, in the worst year of the newspaper industry. Everything crashed, and all these newspapers went out of business. But I had my first kid, and I was like, ah, I gotta make some sort of money. And um, so as much as it was a nightmare to do, I did do it for 11 years. I had a deadline every day for 11 years, and I had to do nine strips a week, so it was kind of insane. But I did come up with a few that I enjoy, and I will read a couple for you. Do you think ex extraterrestrials are racist? Why do you ask? They never abduct people of color. It's easier to catch white people at night. So what I love about my readers is they're extremely intelligent. And after this strip ran, I started getting all these articles from my reader, readers saying, you are wrong, sir. You are wrong. And they were sending me articles of the first couple that was ever abducted in America by aliens. And it was a mixed race couple. It was a black husband and a white wife. And I always write back and say, they got caught because of the white wife. But, uh, <laughs> but they, you know, I love it. I love it when I get schooled like that. Um, here's another one of my favorite ones. Now, my strip ran in a few places, Boston Herald, uh, Washington Post, uh, San Francisco Chronicle, San Diego Union Tribune. This is a, a one that ran on a Sunday. That's why it's in color. Um, vet mentoring. A guy in my unit smothered an IED, took one for the team. When I got home, I went to tell his loved ones what kind of sacrifice he made. Turns out he was gay. I was the first one to let his partner know what happened. I've shared things with soldiers that I'd never tell family and friends. War does that. Here was a guy who gave his life for his fellow soldiers, but wasn't allowed to share with us who was waiting for him back home. If we're not fighting for this soldier's freedom, then what are we fighting for? So, you know, this is an example of a cartoon that's not funny. <laughs> and, and, you know, back in the pit day, people would say, oh, it's not funny. But this particular one, I started getting all these letters, a ton of letters from specifically San Diego. And they were from military people. And what this is, is um, this is uh, about a law called Don't Ask, Don't Tell that was in the military, which was you could be gay in the military, but you can't tell anyone, which is such a silly law. And so I was just trying to put it in a way that if you're gonna put your life on the line or the life in the hands of other people and you can't, you can't be truthful about yourself, then that's, that's screwed up. And so all these letters I got were emails from people saying, you just changed my mind on don't ask, don't tell. I think we should get rid of it. And these were all military people in San Diego, because San Diego is a big military town. I got 28 letters, emails from people saying, thank you. Like, you just, you don't ask, don't tell, shouldn't exist. Now, in our wildest dreams, as a cartoonist, you wish you could do something that would change someone's, you know, belief in something like you was like yes like i changed minds and um so this was an example of doing that now i told you that my strip ran in many different places like the san diego tribune it also ran 
and the Washington Post. And uh, it ran uh, in 2015, I think it was. And um, this is the Oval Office and the president who was the person who was president at that time. And on his desk is the Sunday comics. My strip ran in June of that year. In October of that year, this president repealed Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Now, I'm not saying I had anything to do with it, <laughs> but the evidence is right there. So, comics can change people's lives, and I need people to understand that. It's not just little funnies, ha-ha, you know? And um, we were talking about it in the class today. Someone asked me, like, are there any comics that you, um, you know, really particularly love? And I, I was telling them that it isn't about the comics. It's about how people, f you know, people's letters to me after reading the comics. And one of the examples was uh, uh, this kid that was in Vallejo, California, and he was... Uh, it sounded like, you know, he was a kid in a, a rough neighborhood and he had never thought of, of ever, he would ever leave his hometown, but he, he loved reading my comics about going overseas and experiencing different countries and different cultures and everything. And he loved them so much that he suddenly wanted to, to go overseas. And he was writing to me to tell me he got... Uh, part, he got started participating in a school program and he was going overseas for the first time and he felt the need to tell me, you're the reason why I'm going overseas. And so those type of things, like just, they, they make me weep. And, uh, um, and you know, what the, one of the other ones that, <coughs> I, I've been meeting to add to the show, but I, I just feel, I feel completely weird about it. I have to check with them. But I got an email, uh, 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 no, it was on Twitter. This guy said he was going to kill himself. He was in the bathroom going to kill himself. And the only thing that kept him alive was he was reading my comics. And someone showed up and, and helped him out. And he just said, you know, sorry to bring you down, Keith, but thank you for saving my life. Like, so comics can change, you know, I joke about it, but they do do things, and you just don't know how you affect people, and your behavior, and your art, and, and the way you treat people, and the way you write about things. Um, I, I think we all have, and it's, you know, I'm not saying everybody go out of here and create uh, some art that's gonna change people's lives, but the way we, we make space for people, and the way we listen to people is very important. So I think we should uh, all consider that. So speaking of comics about stuff, this is a comic about Martin Luther King. And this is a comic that came out when he was marching. And I always see stuff online saying, Martin Luther King did it right. He didn't stop traffic. He, didn't he did everything right. This was the type of stuff that they wrote about Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King was stabbed. He was shot. He was arrested. He was murdered. <laughs> He went down when he was killed. He was one of the most hated Americans in the United States. And we have this sort of fantasy idea of what 
what he was now that he's been gone for all this time. But people from that time know that, know that he was advocating for uh, uh, workers' rights. And, and people were like, oh, you're moving out of your lane now. You know, stay in your lane and all this stuff. And I just want to show that, like, everything that's happening now was happening 50 years ago, was happening 100 years ago, was happening 200 years ago. Here's another comic that came out about Martin Luther King. And this was a comic that came out, I think, in the 50s. And it was about the Montgomery bus boycott. And uh, they printed up 250,000 of these. They put them in churches. They put them in schools. They put them in libraries. And there was a young man that read it. Um, man's name is John Lewis. And that inspired him to join the movement. Uh, that co same comic book inspired two of the guys that were in the Greensboro Woolworth sit-ins that participated in that. Um, comics do connect, they do reach. I wish that they had graphic novels um, when I was a kid and they had Aceritum in school because I would have read a lot more. But uh, the most rock star thing about John Lewis is his assistant, <laughs> well, there's many rock star things about John Lewis, but his assistant was like, hey, why don't you do a book like that was similar to that Martin Luther King comic that inspired you? And he was like, no, no, no. And he kept on asking him every once in a while, come on, like, please, come on, do it. And he finally was like, okay, yes, I will do it, but you have to write it with me. So uh, that's how the March series came about. And um, I, I think it was 2013 or 2014, uh, March had come out. Uh, it might have been the first one or the second one. But at Comic-Con in San Diego, John Lewis cosplayed as himself and led a ton of kids through Comic-Con. And it was like the most amazing cosplay and experience I've ever seen at Comic-Con. And uh, so it's, it's really uh, inspired me. And that's one of the reasons why I did uh, this poster. I love doing posters of folks who inspire me in some way, shape, or form. And so this is one of the prints that uh, I, I did. And, um, and one of the things that folks wanted me to do was talk about some of the artists that influenced me. Um, so um, this is an artist uh, named Ollie Harrington. And Ollie Harrington uh, was part of the Harlem Renaissance um, back in the day. And um, he ran with uh, all these amazing writers and artists and poets, and he left America and moved to Paris um, and spent a lot of time in Paris with all these amazing creators. But then he ended up going to Germany and, writing and doing cartoons um, about America from Germany and uh, for many, many years. And all the stuff that he was doing, the same issues that I, I've, I write about. It's like nothing seems to change. But this is a great book of essays. Um, Thomas Inge uh, came up to me on a slideshow that I was doing at VCA in Virginia and gave me that book. And I was like, oh, uh, uh, this is amazing. This is really cool. Um, this is the first female, um, black female cartoonist, and her name is Jackie Orms, and she created 
uh, Torchy. She created these uh, comic strips that were way ahead of its time, independent black woman with um, just like romance and her work and all this different stuff. And she created the series of black dolls um, for ch uh, little girls that were a huge uh, success. And this was, I think, in the 40s? I can't remember how long ago it was, but it's pretty amazing. Um, another cartoonist that was doing it way better <laughs> and, and, and just a nice, a wonderful person is Maury Turner. Uh, Maury Turner was the first nationally syndicated black cartoonist uh, who did Wee Pals uh, back in the 60s. And it's, it's terrible, but he was like in just a very few uh, newspapers. Um, and then Martin Luther King was murdered, and then uh, he got into all these different newspapers after that. So sometimes, like, the worst thing that happens, sort of, you know, um, things happen because of that, that are, are good, I guess. Um, Lalo Alcarez um, is another cartoonist who is a um, big influence for me. Um, Lalo is just a few years older than me, and everything that happens to him usually happens to me a couple of years after. So whenever I see him, like when he started in television, I was like, oh, man, like I'm going to be in television. <laughs> and, 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 and lo and behold, three years later, like I got to deal with, with TV. So uh, it's really fun. And we're like, it's crazy. I, I don't know if this is totally true, but he did this comic in, in 2002. And that happened in 2014. And I'm not, I can't, I don't understand how that happened. But like, he, he, is, he is amazing. And we're thinking about doing a tour together called the Black and Tan Tour. And uh, so if we do, um, please book us. <laughs> um, Dred Scott is another artist that uh, I'm, I really enjoy. Um, and he does, he does sort of agitprop stuff and a lot of physical stuff. And uh, this is one of the things he did where um, basically he had like a, a, a fire, uh, a fireman just spray um, this hose on him. And it was, you know, a, a metaphor for what blacks have to deal with in society just to live their lives. And, um, and we were, you know, I met him when I was invited to do my police brutality slideshow in Germany. And I just remember it, it was really dark. I couldn't see the audience. But every time I was showing all these things, I kept on hearing these, this giggling. And it just kept on going. I was like, who's this guy giggling? And it, the lights went up. And I was like, oh my god, it's you know, Dred Scott. So it was really cool. Um, Fly. Uh, Fly is this cartoonist um, who I don't, I don't even know what to say. Like, I, I knew her as a member of God is My Co-Pilot back in the day, this band um, out of New York. And she was a squatter in the ABC No, no Rio squat in um, the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And, uh, and she, crea she created these wonderful um, things called peeps where she would draw somebody she's interviewing and then write their interview uh, behind it. And this really is the influence of like for my my drawings of folks who influenced me and and with the words 
uh, you know, it's not the same exact same as that, but I, I love her work, uh, and it's so great to see, um, you know, she's, she just did a really great piece in Minneapolis, a, a retrospective show. So, Fly was in a band, was an artist, I was in a band, an artist, music has been a big influence. Um, the Clash, I came up uh, in, in the 80s, um, you know, as I was spinning hip hop uh, on my college radio station and got thrown off because I was playing it. But at the same time, I was mixing in stuff like The Clash in it and uh, just really loved sort of uh, their attitude and the stuff that they, their influences you could hear um, in their music. And um, they were just, they were, they were cool. Um, uh, Henry Rollins, I'm a big fan of because of his transition from, you know, as as we get older, um, I, I, I've been admiring all these artists who like transition and go from different places. So he was, you know, in Black Flag um, and but he also developed his own um, book uh, publishing arm and he would go around and do these presentations and everything. Uh, but he also has this amazing radio show in Los Angeles on KCRW, and it's the only time I enjoy listening to NPR fundraising because he goes insane. He'll play like Filipino punk, and he'll scream that he needs $50,000. He doesn't, you know, just crazy insane, and he raises it. He raises it. He raises more money than probably the whole thing, <laughs> everybody else together, so... Uh, I, I really dig him, and he's always like seems to find like really interesting roles too. Um, David Bowie, Bowie's a no-brainer. Um, someone who who uh, is not afraid to try different things, not afraid to try something new, but also just he's used you know his privilege to call out places like MTV. That uh, MTV back in the day. For the kids out there, MTV used to be, you know, it was music television. They used to play just music. Uh, but they never played black people. Like, they would never play any black music. And and so it, there's a nice video of David Bowie calling them out, like, during an interview. Like, saying, so why don't you guys play black people? Like, like you know, every music that everybody's into here is, is it, it wouldn't be exist if it wasn't for black people, you know? And so, uh, to me, that's that's pretty cool. Prince, another big influence. Uh, Prince was using uh, uh, emojis and everything <laughs> before emojis were a thing, and and letters for words and words for letters, but just also fighting for the rights of artists early on, and low key, like contributing to all these different uh, uh, things. That and he would never talk about. It was pretty amazing. Um, Public Enemy, uh, Public Enemy, huge. I just dropped way too much money on a Public Enemy vinyl album last night at some <laughs> at some record shop here, and I was like, I gotta stop. I gotta stop. But Public Enemy, you know, if you look at the lyrics of "Fight the Power," it is a manifesto for Black people to have. It is about just, you know, knowing what we're up against. And we spend, again, our adulthood trying, like, figuring out, oh, okay, so the person that I was smarter than in school is doing really well, like, somehow, 
and I'm not doing as well. Why is that? Like, and we have this, we spend, we have to spend the time sort of deciphering, oh, these were all fairy tales. A Christopher Columbus was a fairy tale. Oh, uh, you know, everyone equal in America is a fairy tale. Like, and I'm not saying it because uh, I'm some anti-American person. I'm saying it because we could make it better for people, but we have to acknowledge that it's not better for people right now. It's not better for people. If, some, if somebody black gets their house assessed and they see it's low, and then they take all evidence of black people out of there and put white pictures up and have their white neighbor come in and their house gets assessed three hundred or $400,000 more. That's a problem. That is a system that is in place that works against people of color. And it's not, it's not your fault or your fault or your fault or your fault, but it exists. And I say this all the time. Oh, the people say, oh, it's not my problem. Well, it is your problem. It is my problem. It is all our problems. You know, I don't litter. Uh, my kids, I teach my kids not to litter. But that does not mean that we don't volunteer to clean up our local forests or clean up the beach. Because we know there is a system in place that is allowing people to just chuck stuff all over the place. And if, if we don't clean it up, who's going to clean it up? So I say to you that don't just say, oh, well, you know, I teach my kids not to be racist. I can teach, uh, you know. Like, we have to be actively anti-racist. Not just not do anything. We have to physically do stuff to help dismantle the system that is in place. Oh, so Chuck D was a graphic designer too. I took graphic design in college. Uh, so we have a lot of things in common, uh, but he's amazing uh, and really cool, really good artist. Uh, Boots Riley, played a lot of shows with him. Uh, the head of the coup. Um, and did the movie Sorry to Bother You. Sorry to Bother You is what happens when <laughs> a movie company doesn't interfere <laughs> and screw with your vision. There would not be horse people <laughs> if, <laughs> if the movie company had the, the and you like if you watch the movie, you, you'll know about the horse people. Uh, <laughs> but he, but all his music is infused with his sensibility and it's pretty amazing. And I love, he's just such a character. It's pretty cool. Um, they shoot people, don't they? Like in 2015 uh, or 2014, I started, I, I ran around uh, the country and the world doing a slideshow collecting my work on police brutality, which I've been doing for 20 years. And so many people were saying, why is this happening? Why is it? It's, it's Obama. That's why. It's uh, Obama. Um, and I was just trying to explain to people that police brutality has been going on forever. That's the reason why the police exists <laughs> are to keep the black and brown population in check. Again, going back to the slave patrols, poor whites that were hired to keep the, the slaves in check. 
And when the, the Baltimore and Ferguson Police Departments were investigated by the Department of Justice, their analysis was their job is to keep the black and brown communities in check. So it's no different now than it was 100, 200 years ago. Absolutely nothing different. And so I don't know if people understand that, like, the only thing that's different now is people have cell phones. So, um, so everybody has to see it. And I personally don't like looking at videos like that because it, it re-traumatizes. There's a lot of things that traumatize me that remind me of you know, the system that we have in place. And this may seem bizarre to you, but when I see uh, videos of the Brady Bunch, uh, there was a uh, uh, Brady Bunch is this show that was in the 70s and um, it was uh, it was a show <laughs> it was and but what happened is when the show was over they went and had the Brady Bunch variety hour and the Brady Bunch variety hour is them grown up and none of them can sing and they're all singing stuff like like Earth, Wind, and Fire songs. And to me, to, and to, to black people, that is traumatizing. And instead of just hiring Earth, Wind, and Fire to do a, a decent version of their song, you're watching people that aren't that talented at acting, and they can't sing, and they're doing it. And people post that stuff. And I swear to you, that I'm not saying it's as traumatizing as black people dying. But I'm just saying it's, it's, it's to me, no one, no person of color who has no talent whatsoever would ever get a TV show like that and sit there and sing terrible, terribly like that. And that's the thing that like, is like, oh my God, like someone spent maybe a million dollars to do this. You know, I don't know how much it was to make shows like that. But imagine giving it to somebody who is talented to create something. So that that to me is very traumatizing. So okay, <laughs> I'm already I'm already talking way too much. I'm gonna run through really quickly just a couple of police brutality cartoons. This is the stuff that I was just trying to explain to people. I was going around like this is nothing's changed, but I, I need people to understand that that this happens all the time. Mr. White Police Officer, how many shots does it take for one, four white officers to defend themselves against one unarmed black male? Black male, well, let's see. Blam, 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 blam. 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 Blam, 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 blam. Blam, 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 blam. 41. Don't you think that was a little excessive? Listen, you people could avoid getting into these situations if you just lighten up. So this was a comic I did after Amadou Diallo, an African immigrant in New York, was in the vestibule of his apartment building and he was going for his wallet and four police officers shot at him 41 times. And then when they went on trial, it got moved up to the whitest part of New York, which only happens when there's uh, uh, officers who kill a black person. It's got to be moved someplace because there might be black people around and they're, they're, 
whacked out. They'll go against the police. And so then it gets moved to the whitest part, and then they got off. And they got off because they said they were defending themselves against this man. So the point with that strip is how many shots does it take to go from defense to offense? 25, 30, 35? And we let this happen all the time. And this is the firing range where police officers do target practice. How come all the targets are black? What do you mean? They're silhouettes. They're supposed to be black. I'm talking about the afro and the FUBU logo across the chest. Well, I'll be. So I did this in 2009. 2014, there was a woman in the National Guard, black woman in Florida, was like, called up her local police station and said, I would love to do target practice at your, at your uh, range. I said, sure, come on in. So she goes in there, this black woman, goes into the shooting range, and up there for the targets were black and white photographs of young black teenagers, black male teenagers, and one of them was her brother as a teenager. And when the police chief was uh, in front doing a press conference, his excuse was like, uh, what we're doing is not illegal. And that was it. That was it. And it just happened recently, like a year ago, in Detroit. There was like a, a field trip for a class going through this police station. And there were the same, there were pictures of black men that they shoot at. This is a system that allows this to happen, that we tolerate, that we say is, is okay. And I think part of this system is because we are inundated with propaganda constantly. If you look at, if you watch any television, you look at, besides the drug commercials, you look at how many police procedurals there are. The rookie, FBI, NCIS, this, that. There are hundreds, hundreds of shows where the police are outnumbered, they're, out, they're, they're outmanned, they're outfunded, they don't have enough guns, they have to sometimes bend the rules, they solve crimes in a half hour or an hour. And if you look at statistically how little cops solve crimes, it's crazy. And, but we, but we, it's in our head that, that cops, there's crime everywhere. And by the way, crime levels, they went up a little bit over the past uh, a couple of years, but they, they're as low as they were in the 60s. Nowhere near the 90s. 90s was crazy super predators, psycho nut cases. And I'm, I'm telling you this, I lived through the 90s. It wasn't that bad. <laughs> like, so they make it sound like we're going through hell right now, like we're in hell. And I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I, uh, you know, it's really not that. We don't need uh, more cops on the street. We don't, they don't need more guns. They don't need all this stuff, but it's in people's heads. And here's what happened. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a cop. Not really, but, but I would see SWAT, I would see SWAT, some guy driving through, uh, diving through a glass thing and with a gun, like the black guy in SWAT. I was like, ooh, I wanna, wow, that's cool. Um, but, you know, all, and what happens is the people who are really want to become cops go to cop school, and they, and by the way, 
mean, you have to put in more time uh, as a hair salon person, more hours to become a hair salon person than it is to become a cop. But so then they get to being a cop, and then 90% of it is just sitting around in a car, and nothing happens. And you have to conjure up the crimes. Like, you're like, wait, well, you know, I need some action. So then a broken taillight is a crime. A jaywalker is a crime. Like, something's going on there. Like, and you conjure up all this craziness. And I, I you know, I have people in my family that are police officers or that were police officers, and I have these conversations with them, and they're like, I, I can't argue <laughs> against anything that you say, anything that you say, because there's nothing, there's nothing to argue. Like you, and and all that stuff you see on there is, you know, I think it's, I think it's dangerous, extremely dangerous, and everybody does it bad boys, like all this stuff, like it's so crazy. I mean, I think one of the biggest craziest jokes is Ice-T is the longest running actor in a police procedural in the history of television. <laughs> it's like insane. It's crazy. Okay, so that's why this person protests. And of course, he's been blackballed. That's completely evident. Um, the greatest thing about it is he's gone on to do a lot of great things, produce a lot of amazing things. His um, his short series on his time as in uh, as a football player, baseball player is great. I think uh, I'm not sure if he's helping to produce the 1619 project, but you should check out the 69 project, uh, 19 project, which is really amazing. Um, you know, 50, 60 years ago, uh, you know, people. Don't remember, but this guy was one of the most hated people in America because he wouldn't go fight for, uh, go fight in Vietnam. He stood up and went to jail for it, and uh, and people couldn't stand him for it. But now he's this beloved uh, American uh, who stood up for it, and that's the thing. It's like, you know, hated for when you stand up for stuff, but then beloved, you know, like when you die. You know, like the thing that drove me crazy, crazy about John Lewis is every politician that fought him uh, for voting rights, like were quick to say how great he, wonderful he was. Well, if he was so great and wonderful, why wouldn't you, why don't you give the people the right to vote? Like, you know, the guaranteed right to vote. Um, but 50 years before that, Paul Robeson uh, was this amazing athlete who was also this amazing baritone opera singer and an actor and an activist. And so uh, folks were doing this stuff a long time ago. And that's why when people say stay in your lane, like if we stayed in our lane, if people stayed in their lane, we wouldn't be, you know, America wouldn't exist if people stayed in their lane. Like the, the, everything that gets invented wouldn't exist if people stayed in their lane. Josephine Baker, I talked about her. Robert Smalls, a guy who was born into slavery, uh, was on a boat and put on his, the captain's hat when the boat was, uh, the captain would go off drinking, and people on there would say, you know, you kind of look like the captain when you wear that hat. He stole the boat, picked up his family along the way, and then uh, did all these like signals to all these, it, this was a Confederate ship, by the way, a Confederate, <laughs> stole his Confederate ship. 
and then like made it up to the Union North, convinced uh, Lincoln to use freedmen in the Union Army. And then after, he, after the Union won, he came down, bought the whole old house that he uh, was a slave in, and get this, uh, his former owner, his, the, his wife, who went insane after the uh, Civil War, when she got out of the insane asylum, he let her sleep in the master bedroom of his home until she died. Uh, there's no, like, that to me is like the old-fashioned version of, of when someone who, like, gets beaten by the cops and then they have something, like, they uh, forgive the cops or forgive things, like, uh, like, I, I can't, I, I can't imagine sort of enduring all the things that, that folks do and then they come up in front of cameras and apologize, and, I mean, uh, and forgive people, like, it's like I would just love to see a moment, and I wish I got a season three with my show because I wanted to do a thing where my character is like up in front of the microphone and about to apologize. He's like, "Screw you, <laughs> screw you! I want reparations, and I want the NBA logo changed from that white guy with the crew cut and have a guy with an afro." So, um, okay, I'm sorry. So quickly. I did this, so this is the thing, black history. Black history is American history. That's, you know, that's the biggest thing more than anything else. And I need people to understand this. We don't teach history at all. We go over slavery because we're so afraid of, of not, it's not even, kids, will, white people will not feel uncomfortable about it. What I need people to understand is, if you understood the history of this country, everything that's happening today, you would go, oh, of course. Of course, uh, Ron DeSantis, DeSantis is shipping migrants uh, to Massachusetts. 50 years ago, uh, the same thing, uh, segregationists took a bunch of black people, put them on a bus, paid for them to be driven to Massachusetts, dropped off, and told them that Kennedy was going to have all these jobs for them. Like, all the people that are on these school boards that are banning books uh, about uh, black folks and about like anything that tells the truth about history, after the Civil War, the plan was to get Southern women to join school boards all across uh, the South and say the, the Civil War was not about, about slavery. It was about states' rights. And they, it worked, and they and literally, the, up in, like they don't teach, they make it sound like slavery had nothing to do with it. Even though all the declarations from all the different states were like, yeah, we're doing this because of slavery. <laughs> like we're fighting this because of slavery. And the, the biggest thing is I, I want people to understand that we don't comprehend what you could build if you had centuries of free labor. What could you build if you had 250 years of absolutely free labor? We don't take that in. And if you wanted to make more labor, 
you just assaulted half the people on your plantation and made more. And when they had babies, you took them away and sold them. I don't think we take the time to understand how damaging that is. That the fact that black folks in this country have been enslaved longer than they've been free. We don't look at that timeline. And the idea that suddenly, oh, you guys are free. Like, <laughs> I listened to an interview in 1930 of a freed slave who was in Texas. His owner came up to him with a shotgun in his family and said, y'all are free. You have five minutes to get off here, off my land, and I'll start shooting. So this family that knew nothing more than being enslaved, had nothing, were sent into the downtown of this town to find food, to find shelter, to find jobs, and they were rejected at every part of the way. And so when people sit there go, why don't you pull yourself by up by your bootstraps? Black folks didn't have the bootstraps to pull themselves up by. And I don't think people truly understand that. And so, you know, this idea of wealth. You know, the average white family has $200,000 of wealth. Average black family, barely anything. And we know that wealth is passed on, usually through real estate. The US government wanted families to have their first house in the 30s and 40s. So they're giving out these low-cost loans. They weren't giving them to black folks. So you had white people building wealth. They were able to go to schools that black folks couldn't go to. And they pass it on and pass it on, and they accumulate. We don't teach this. And because we don't teach this, people just sit there and go, well, why, why don't you get it together? It's as if, you know, imagine if black folks were in here playing Monopoly for three hours and you walked in and the black folks were like, you wanna play? You guys wanna play? And, the black, and you said, I'm not gonna play. Like, you own all the hotels and motels and all the properties and everything. And the blacks were like, hey, wait, we started out with $200. We're giving you $200. That's what this is. That's what this is. So, this idea, and here's the great thing about it, is reparations. There used to be time, if I mentioned reparations, people would be like, oh my God. How dare you? Like, <laughs> how dare you say that? White privilege? People are like, oh, are you, are you crazy? Like, now we can start to at least have these conversations. Reparations were paid after the Civil War. Do you know who they were paid to? White slave owners who lost their property. They were paid. We need to pay. We need to pay people. And here's the thing. We need to do it, I think we should do it the way um, America does its thing, which is never mention race, but just pay families with bonds uh, by looking at their assets, like what their wealth is. So the lowest, the least wealthiest folks get the most uh, money. 
That way you never have to mention race. And then you'll see, <laughs> then someone will notice that black people are getting all the money and then you know they'll shut it down. But that's the way, that's the way racism works, which is like, we'll make these laws that are vaguely like, they target black people, but they're not, I mean, that's what the you know, voting laws are. That's what um, all the black codes were. Well, black codes were really straight up. No, we don't want black folks. I was talking about Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson is another fairy tale. Jackie Robinson was not the first uh, professional black professional baseball player. Uh, Moses Fleetwood and someone else, someone in the class said it today. Moses Fleetwood Walker uh, is the very first black professional baseball player, late 1800s, uh, and it was right when white folks were like, nah, and shut it all down for black folks. Uh, 10, years of uh, 10 years of reconstruction, they were like, oh, 10 years um, after 250, 000, uh, 250 years of slavery is enough. Um, so that should fix everything. Please understand that, that this much time under slavery and this much time uh, at, in, under Jim Crow, and then you have uh, civil rights, uh, affirmative action, and a black person. That does not wipe out this. We know, have you ever broken anything? Yes, of course you have. It's so much easier to break something than it is to fix something. So much easier. It takes so much more time to fix something. And you take 250 years, plus 100 years Jim Crow, 350 years, and you think that you can fix it? And like, under the, under the guise of like affirmative action and a black president? Like, that's insane. That's insane. But the first thing we have to do is acknowledge it. Acknowledge that it happens because, and acknowledge the contributions of people to this country that don't, that aren't from Europe. Indigenous folks, Mexican folks, Asian folks, black folks. Because when white people just, when white people have proof that they didn't do it, they think aliens did it. I can't tell you how many people have talked about, oh yeah, the aliens uh, made the, the pyramids. So I've, I've been there. Um, and, and also just, uh, there's, ah, there's so much. Anyway, uh, Spike Lee, another big influence. But Spike Lee, you go back years before that, um, Oscar Michaud. Oscar Michaud was this amazing filmmaker um, in the teens and 20s who created black content of just black people acting like people. Romance, uh, you know, drama, stuff like that. And he, when Birth of a Nation came out, uh, D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, which, you know, just made everybody scared of black people, he had, like, he created a film that, that uh, directly answered that. Um, but it was just about showing people, black people being normal. And I think more white people need to see that. More, you know, black people see it all the time because we just live our lives. But I will say this. My wife is from Germany. And she said when she first met my family and my friends I grew up with, she was like, hmm, you guys 
don't talk like black people talk on, like on TV and film. And I said, you know why? <laughs> because all the black people on TV and film are approved by white executives. They're the ones who make the decisions on how black people appear. So when you have Kevin Hart, Kevin Harding it up, it's not, you know, it's, that's, the, that's a very approved, uh, Chris Tucker, like all that, all these people in drag um, for laughter, that's all white executive approved. And I'm telling you this, like people like Issa Rae, um, and I like to think that, you know, myself just wanna create <laughs> uh, depictions of black folks that we don't see on TV and film. And which leads us to woke, which is like, it was important for me, it was like, you know what? Like I said to them, I don't want black people with guns. I don't want black people in drag for laughter. They can be in you know, they can be in drag dressed like women if they, you know, that's their thing, but not just for a joke. Um, and what was the third one? Oh, not just dancing in front of the camera, like, you know, like it's it's some thing. So um, yeah, so I went to uh, Los Angeles to get a, a show, and I did. And um, a lot of planets had to align to make it happen. But we shot it in Vancouver, up north, because San Francisco is way too expensive to shoot in. Um, Lamorne Morris from New Girl played me. Uh, Blake Anderson from Workaholics played my roommate. Um, and uh, newcomer T-Murf uh, played my other roommate. Um, and it was uh, really amazing. And if you've seen the show, uh, in episode seven, um, my character, played by Lamorne, gets punched in the face by a koala. Um, I got to play that koala. Um, so this is me and my sisters on set uh, the night that I had to punch my, my uh, Lamorne. And <clears throat> I will say this, I couldn't see anything um, so I would hear, they'd say, koala, and then they'd say, step up here and then take a swing. And I remember taking a swing and then someone going, I don't think he's ever thrown a punch in his life. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true, that's true. So season two, we shot in Atlanta. So we shot in Vancouver season one in January, February. We shot, shot in Atlanta in July, August. And they both had the pass for San Francisco. So in, in Vancouver, they had to wear like sort of light stuff while it was freezing. And in, in Atlanta, they had to still wear that like jackets while it was like, you know, 95 degrees, you know, humidity and all that stuff. So it was kind of crazy. Um, my favorite episode of season two was uh, a parody of One Night in Miami, which um, is uh, a really neat film and play in and of itself. But um, the character of Ayana, played by Sushir Zameda, uh, trips on mushrooms, and she conjures up all these um, uh, historical figures from the past, including Harriet Tubman's secret girlfriend, which you know most people <laughs> say, well, Harriet Tubman's secret girlfriend. Um, yeah, we made that up, but uh, 
it's uh, she was hilarious, and it's so great when like actors who are just there for the day are like knock it out of the ballpark. It's really great. So in season two, uh, I make an appearance very early on. I am the mime uh, at the uh, in episode one, and here's the sad thing about it. So we found out the mime that we were gonna hire was asking too much money to be the mime. So I was like. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be the mime. And here's, here's the sad thing. All they needed to do was put makeup on me. Like, I didn't have to change my clothes. So I dressed like, like a low-rent mime. And uh, so that was it. That was the gloves and then just face. So I've, I've gotten out of my lane again. Um, this is just something that I do and uh, that I've done recently. And one of the things that drives me crazy are mug shots. Okay, so... Mug shots, and, and yeah, I mean, obviously this is a play on that. So, uh, black, so black mug shots, well, here's what I did. One of the things that drives me completely crazy is when I'm searching for ideas for, for news, uh, go through news, for ideas for comics, I, I always go through Google News, and the only thing that you see outside of sports, generally for black people, are people, black people in mug shots. And here's the thing. Most countries, a lot of countries, it's illegal to post people's mugshots. The only time you can post people's mugshots is if they're guilty of something. But in America, like they just post people's mugshots, like, and those mugshots stay online forever. So when you're going for a job, you're going for credit, you're going for an apartment. The first thing people do is look you up on Google. And if your mugshot comes up, you're done. If you're black and your mugshot comes, you're, you are long done, long done. So I am advocating that we get rid of this idea of posting people's mugshots because police love to put mugshots up because it shows we arrested somebody. We're doing our job. We're arresting people. And it follows these people through their whole lives. So I was saying, you know what? I'm going to post uh, I'm going to take my tea. I'm going to take a selfie uh, with the mug. And um, I bought the URL, blackmugshots.com, and I posted it up there. And I started uh, asking people to send me their mugshots. Black folks can have any mug, but white people, anybody who's not black has to have a black mugshot. So I can call it a black mugshot. And we did a hashtag black mugshots. And I wanted to see how long we could break the algorithm uh, for Google if I can break to the first front page. It took me a month and a half, but um, people started sending in their mug shots and posting it, and we were posting up online. It took me one month to break into the uh, black mug shots. Um, but I started posting up stories and information about the effects of mug shot, that mug shots have on everybody. In, in North Carolina, I don't know if they have them here in small towns, but there are newspapers that are just mug shots. They sell newspapers of mugshots. And I think you're supposed to just feel better that you're not in these mugshots. Like but they sell them for a dollar. And, um, and there are companies out there that will contact you and say, we will scrub the internet of your mugshot for $1,000. There are companies out there that do that. So like, this stuff happens. There are so many things that are up against us, you know, like literally, 
like people who have names that sound black will not get, get called back just because their names sound black. You know, there are um, things that like, um, I think a, a black man with a college degree has a harder time getting a job than a white man who has been arrested. Um, people need to understand that we need uh, to make changes in our society. And we need to, um, it's not just equity. Uh, no, it's not just equality, it's equity. That's what I'm trying to say, it's equity. We need to make up for the wrongs done in the past. It's it just, that's the only way we'll be able to move forward. So I, I say to you, in conclusion, um, knowledge of self is so important. And America, knowledge of self is knowing the history of this country. Um, so that picture, you know, now that I'm an adult and I did all the research of it, that man uh, in the suit, the black man, is a lawyer. And, uh, you know, a bunch of these folks are all poor white people who are just pissed off that black people are being sent to their schools because black folks' schools were not good enough. Um, I feel like this is a metaphor for America, which is all these poor whites are going after the, the black dude, while all the rich folks, white folks are in these buildings here making the, making the laws so that the schools in the black neighborhoods are terrible, and then saying the only way to make this work is to send them all to these other schools. I would be perfectly fine <laughs> if the black uh, schools were funded and not by the accordance to the taxes that are collected. Because that is a perpetual, if they're all terrible neighborhoods, which they've all been redlined, all these black neighborhoods, that's how ghettos were formed, where folks who couldn't get uh, uh, mortgages to, to get houses, they're all forced into the worst parts of town, which are generally the east parts of town. I don't know if it's like that in East Eugene, I don't know, but and every, s the east part of town is generally the worst part of town. You know why? Because the wind. The wind blows all the bad pollution and fumes, so all the dumps are put on the east side of town. And that's where all the black neighborhoods are, all the poor neighborhoods are. And every town has the same story. Every town has the same story. Um, so I just ask you, we all need to step up. And it doesn't, I'm not saying we all take a bullet here. <laughs> what I'm saying is when you have the opportunity to hire somebody, don't dismiss them because their name sounds funny. You may not be able to pronounce it, okay? Because if you are helping somebody, you know what? It's like LeBron James winning a championship in Cleveland. That's like two anywhere else. Like, if you step up and give somebody an opportunity, I, I can't tell you how important that is. And I, 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 there were so many people that I, that gave me an opportunity. And so I ask of you to do the same thing. 
And it, it, it's easy to be racist. It's easy to be sexist. It's easy to be exclusionary. It, it's, it's harder to go against the grain and call people out uh, for their stuff. I, uh, someone wrote to me that I went to school with 30, 40 years ago. I, mean, I don't even know what <laughs> when I went to school. Late 80s. Wrote to me via Facebook and said, Keith, um, you don't, uh, I don't know if you remember me, but you were in my dorm and I told this joke and you called me out on it and explained to me why it was offensive to me, to you. And he's, you know, didn't, you know, said it in a way that like made, I took it, I took away from that, I went home and I started calling my family out on stuff. <laughs> Just all these different things. And now I have a kid, and my kid's friends are all diverse and all this different stuff, and they live in a life that I never thought I would you know, be in this. And I just wanted to say that like, you calling me out that day uh, changed my trajectory on what it. And I do not remember this person. I do not remember the incident. I may have been stoned. But that person, I don't know, like clearly was affected by what happened. And I just want to say, like, the smallest things can change people's, just start them on a different road. And so I just want to say, in conclusion, like, we all have to step up because we are watching, we are watching people in power go, yep. You know, black history is not important. It's not important. Because they want it to continue the way it's going. And it's not going well. It's not. Um, if we want to live to the ideals of America, we should teach the history, the real history. And um, we should also teach music in school, because music Seriously, like, everything that you listen to goes back to black folks. And you'd be like, oh, well, okay, well, rock and roll black folks, you know, blues black folks. Like, oh, black folks. Like, like you will have, and, and people need to, we need to give credit where credit is due. The high five, black folks. The super soaker, black folks. The potato chip. Black folks, the slap shot in hockey, the descendants of escaped slaves who went to Canada, Nova Scotia, invented the modern game that we call hockey, including the slap shot. Look it up. I'm doing a strip right now. The Indiana Hoosiers, Indiana State, is it Indiana State? Hoosiers is named after a black man. His name was Harry Hoosier, black Harry Hoosier. And Indiana is like sneaky racist. Like, and I'm sure people's heads would explode if they're like, oh, the team is named after a black man? And the reason why I know this is, is Someone had posted this thing on, uh, it was from Newsmax, and it was like a guy interviewing 
this white dude like who somehow was getting away with like dropping all this knowledge on this guy. And you could see the host's face going, I don't know anything. Like, like you could see on his face, like, I don't know anything about black history. Like, and he was just like dropping all this stuff. And you could see him recover <laughs> and go, and that's why we should get rid of teacher unions. Like that's a, that's a, that was his recovery. It was it was nothing else. But I'm just saying, like we, it's it's out there. You just have to uh, dig for it. Oh, this is the last thing I'll say. I won't say anything else. <laughs> I'm sorry. I've talked so long. You know how the worst music and the worst food is the most easily accessible. What's the worst hamburger that you can think of? Mickey D's, right? Mickey D's all over the place. The worst um, music, you know, flick on the biggest radio station, and you're going to hear it. If you want a good hamburger, right, you have to look for it. You have to find it. If you want good music, you have to, like, go down to the left of the dial or, like, sir, dig in the crates. They call it hip-hop. It's digging in the crates. It's the same with history. Christopher Columbus is the McDonald's hamburger of history. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> and you, if you dig, and, and that's the thing, anything that's of quality, that's healthy, you have to like really search out for it and find it. And that's what this history that I'm telling you is what we need to do, is seek it, like, like search for it and dig for it. And that's that is the nutritional stuff. That's the good stuff. And so, you know, the Pilgrims, uh, McDonald's hamburger. Uh, Columbus, McDonald's hamburger. Um, but, you know, Robert Smalls and, and all this other like, stuff that's under the surface. If you know that history, that, that's the thing. That's the reason why it, it, it's, almost, uh, it's almost releasing. White people always get mad. They, they get mad. Why? Because they feel guilty. White guilt, that's a lot, there's a lot of white guilt. You will feel less guilty if you know the history of this country. You will feel less guilty because you will understand why it's all happening. And then you will feel compelled to help change it. But right now, by not knowing it, you just get mad. Like, why is everybody tearing stuff up? Why are people protesting and tearing stuff up? Black people built this country. They have every right, they built it for free, every right to tear it all down because they don't own any of it. And when people say, oh, you know, go back to wherever, like, <laughs> we came to America and they stripped us of our names, of our families, of our art, of our culture, of everything, and, and gave us, you know, this, this new horrible identity in, in America. And we persevered through that. I am the, the descendant of the strongest people from that early America. I survived countless atrocities, my ancestors, for me to be here today. And so I need people to start thinking differently about what this history is and understand how important it is. And I thank you. And I'm, <laughs> I apologize for talking so long. 
Um, I, I do funny cartoons too, so. Um, but thank you very much, I appreciate it. Uh, really quick, um, you know, it, this, this is, you know, all this stuff is fine, these books, but I implore you to go seek out books, older books, uh, just from folks who did it 75 years ago who were talking about the same thing, but also seek out black joy, books about black joy, about black creativity. Don't just uh, look at all the worst stuff. And, and uh, this is a quote that I always like to put. Listen, if you ever wondered what you were doing uh, if you were alive during the civil rights movement, now is the time to find out. Now, right now. So. Um, I thank you. Does anybody have any questions? We'll just do a quick Q&A and then I'll do the signing here. Uh, I apologize for going so long, but does anybody have any questions about anything? No? <laughs> uh, uh, okay. Um, well. <laughs> if you have a question, come to one of the microphones so that we can hear you. Yeah. No questions about anything, and no poetry. I don't really have a question, but I just want to say that's a great speech, but also a black um, man named, I think it was Marshall, that invented the post, the post, um, with the, the blue post um, container, so he's the reason that we get mail every day. Oh, yeah. Also, uh, the pencil sharpener that you, that are in all the schools, that's was in, invented by a black man, and it was, it's called the love sharpener. And in an ideal world, I do this thing where I ask someone for a pencil, and um, they give it to me, and I break it right away and drop it on the floor. And I do that that metaphor of it's quick to break, it's very easy to break something, it's harder to fix it. Um, and then I would have a love sharpener. I would pull it out at the end, and then I would take the pieces of uh, the pencil and I would sharpen each side and I would give one back to the person that I took it from and then I would give it to somebody else and then we would all kumbaya uh, in a line out the door. But that's not reality. <laughs> the reality is we all got to step up and do some work. Yes. Hi. Um, some people say that AI is going to create another sort of divide between those who have access to the technology and those who don't. How do you see artificial intelligence um, contributing or destroying the dialogue that you're trying to create? Oh, I, yeah, I, I don't know. All I know is that like, apparently like all these kids are using AI to write essays, which is pretty, I don't know. The ki I think the kids are all right if they're figuring that stuff out and they're way ahead of the rest of us. Listen, I, 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 don't, I don't know what to say about AI. Like, uh, I would say that, that you know, uh, I've, I've heard from kids who like the idea of unplugging and like doing, like there's this one camera that kids are into really, that came out in the 90s that people are really into taking pictures with. And I, I just think that there's gonna be more and more like folks using turntables and, and um, I, yeah, I, yeah, li, li, yeah, let's hope. Um, I, I, I think, I think AI will have its use somehow, some way, but um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I like I, I I honestly 
I don't know. I think it's it's. It, it, I I don't have much to comment on it except that you know, there's they they always have things with extra fingers on it. I I don't know what to say about it. I'm still I, when when someone says AI, I still think of Allen Iverson. So I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> uh, any more questions? No. Well. I thank you for allowing me to come here and yell at you for two hours. Um, I, I do do, yeah, I, you know, it's not all, I, I am an extremely optimistic person, and so the idea that, like, we, I, I, like, I've, I've been doing this for a long time, and, and I feel like we, America has to hit rock bottom before it gets better, and, and, I think people are starting to understand how important art is and how important knowing not just the pretty happy things, but you know, it's 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 like knowing your family's history for diseases, you know? Like the idea that like, oh, like this happened, you know, it's like someone telling you, "Oh, we we don't want you to feel awkward if like that you have a history of cancer in your family, so we're not gonna say anything. We'll just let you get cancer. Like, like the only way that you could move forward to try to address that is by knowing. And so that is the thing. We need to know. And, and there, are, there are powers at work that don't want us to know. And so uh, the idea that it's, it's safer to walk around, like you will get less crap walking around with a gun by your side than a book is pretty scary, so. Any more? This microphone is very lonely right here. Um, oh, oh, very good. I think I'll first um, give you a big thank you. That was very powerful for me to oh, listen to. Thank you. And I'm gonna ask a kind of personalized question for my son who I brought with me here today who is um, an artist and particularly um, is very good at cartooning. And I love the intersectionality that you've created between your art and speaking to people. So for any young artists in the room, what kind of advice would you perhaps give on how to develop that technique? I, well, I would say this, more than anything else, and I speak this to all types of artists, is to tell your story. Tell your personal story. Because for far too long, others have told, uh, uh, others have told our story. So when I, when, you know, that comment about my wife saying, like, you know, like, white people have approved the stories that are told by, about black people. And, like, it's only been recently, or, or but you know, you find someone like Oscar Michaud that does it, had to do it all independently. He had to rent his own theaters, he had to get funding himself, and all that type of stuff. Spike Lee had to reach out across the aisle to, to do Malcolm X, because a, a white dude was gonna do Malcolm X, and he was like, I, I gotta do it. And, and like he was out of money, and people like Oprah stepped up and gave him all these millions of dollars to get it done. Um, tell your story, uh, the autobiograph uh, autobiography of Malcolm X. Um, I, I say this all the time. 
the young people in the audience, you ever notice that anything that's written about your generation is negative? Like, oh, you know, uh, what, what generation is this now? What's, what's it called? Like, they're destroying everything. Oh, you know, this generation doesn't do this anymore. This generation, like, all that stuff is written by old people who are jealous of your youth. And so you should tell your stories and, and that's, you know, so they don't get it wrong. It's super important that you tell your stories. And so I love autobiographical uh, stories, but you can tell it through metaphor, you can tell it through song, you can tell it through poetry, you could, you know, it doesn't have to be cartoons. But as a cartoonist coming up, I would say, don't even ever think about newspapers at all. You stay away from newspapers. Newspapers, they didn't, they, seriously, they left cartoonists out to dry. Like, so like newspapers shouldn't even, even be in your uh, 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 mind at all. R the big thing right now, and, and I urge anybody who's getting the cartooning, is uh, tween books. Like, so if you can come up with a diary of a wimpy kid, or a dog man, or whatever. Like, like those books. There will always be tweens. They will always. They're always coming, uh, <laughs> coming and going. And so, uh, I, I love dog man. I think the dog man books are great. And every title is named after like some really cool old book. And that's the thing that turns you on to other stuff. That's the reason why hip hop is so great. Um, you know, I don't know if you saw the Grammys, but it was like the 50th anniversary of hip hop. Hip. People should be psyched that you watch a whole art form come up within your lifetime that is like now worldwide. And I remember when I was a DJ in college playing music, and I heard these so-called people that were like supposedly like cool tell me, oh, you know, uh, hip hop's just a fad. It's going to be gone in two years. It's not even music, like, and all. And I would say to them, "You sound exactly like people who said the same thing about punk music, who said the same thing about like you are saying that, and you're like 20. Like, why are you saying that?" And and so I laugh on their metaphorical. I dance on a metaphorical graves of their beliefs that <laughs> that hip hop uh, was gonna be gone. And I love to see. And that's the thing about it is samples turn people on to all these other songs in the past. And all the references, if you ever look at like a really good rapper's lyrics, like there are so many things. Like, one of the things that we did when our, in our first album is we did a lyric book, booklet, which was another huge mistake, because it was like a 50-page booklet that we paid all this extra for. But looking back at it now, all the references that we make to like Shakespeare and to like all this other different stuff, my kids are looking at and they're asking me these questions and then I'm turning them on to all this other stuff. It really is like hip hop is almost like to me like the, the old Warner Brothers cartoons that made you go, why, what, who is this actor that they're making fun of? What is this war that they're referencing? What is this? And, and hip hop does that, which I love. It's, it's such an amazing thing. And I don't think people really understand the, the impact that this global thing has, this global thing. Anything else? 
I know someone asked me a question, then I go on a tangent that goes somewhere completely different, but uh, that's, that's how I am. Hey, um, I forgot to ask you during class, or we didn't have enough time to ask you during class. Uh, I just want to ask, um, who are the biggest rappers who like had the most impact on you or your work, and why did they impact you so much? Oh, well, I mean, Public Enemy, it was a huge, Public Enemy was huge, and still to this day. Uh, just you just listen to the lyrics and the fact that the noise, the the production that goes in s some of their earlier stuff, it's it's it is punk music. It's like it's whiny and crazy and nutty. And I've always loved the chaos of that sound and 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 the fact that his voice cuts through, and 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 then at the same time, they're smart enough to have. Flavor Flav there, which can't be explained. <laughs> like, like <laughs> uh, Chuck D talks about when he was trying to get the record company. Like, they're like, so what does Flavor Flav do? And it's like, you gotta have Flavor Flav there because he's like a like a balance to all the seriousness. Like, and I love it. My kid sits there and goes, "What is that guy? What does that guy do?" <laughs> and you can't explain it. It's just. It's crazy, and um, and to me, like, it's it's such uh, it had a, such a huge impact uh, for me, and and back in the late '80s, like, it was a very pro-black, positive thing that got so many people into looking into uh, looking into jazz and looking into the, all the stuff that they were sampling and stuff. It it's it's still amazing, and um, uh, it just. But I love, you know, and listen, this plenty of hip hop that comes out today, I have it goes totally over my head, like you know, and I get it, you know, I've aged, I've aged out, and uh, um, but there's still a lot of great hip hop being made um, that I like, but it's just not being played on the radio. Like again, you have to search in the crates for it, you know. And back in the day, Public Enemy didn't get played on the radio, <laughs> you know. It's like it, it was, it was. You know, crazy devil music that they're gonna come and get us. You know, um, and I say this to this day. Um, uh, Fox News did to white people what white people thought hip hop would do to black people, <laughs> which is got Fox News gets white people so angry that they want to just shoot up places and get all crazy, and it never happened with hip hop. Like. That thing that everyone was afraid about. I had a chance when I was in po program council. I'm going to get bitter again. 1987 or 88, I had a chance to bring De La Soul, A Tribe Called Quest, and the Jungle Brothers to our campus for like maybe like three grand at the most. Like it was nothing for all three of those groups to come. and. Know what they said to me? Let's rap. We're afraid that gangsters might show up. So, yeah, all three groups. Yeah, I think it was '88. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And know who we got instead? Um, I think the American Pie guy for the thirty-second time. And he sings. You know, there's, he doesn't. There's nothing else he sings. So he sings American Pie for like thirty-five minutes. <laughs> 
I'm not bitter. <laughs> I will say this. They, meat, they got meatloaf to come. And I was pissed off because they got meatloaf. But meatloaf put on a hell of a show. <laughs> meatloaf all, would always look at, like he's going to have a heart attack. <laughs> and so I was like, all right, you know, I, I will give meatloaf some, some credit. That was a good show. So, all right. Um, earlier you were talking about how Kevin Hart and Chris Tucker were kind of hand-selected. Um, what methods did you use uh, to make sure that your art was represented uh, correctly? Well, I had a great team that really convinced, and I, I think the people from Hulu said, like, we can't make this show without Keith being completely hands-on the whole time. And I never realized that, like, how rare that is until all these other cartoonists were said to me, like, how did you, like, usually they buy it and they go, get away, get a, we'll, we'll do it. And then they take it and they screw it up. But when I was getting it made, I said, here's the deal. I need to be in on every aspect of it because I've heard too many people say they took it and they screwed it up. And I said to myself, if it's going to get screwed up, I want to be there <laughs> when it's happening. So I'm like, oh, this is where it goes wrong, you know? And apparently it went wrong with the title <laughs> right at the beginning because so many people now dismiss the word woke has become this sort of such a negative thing that they won't even give it a try. They think it's, it's a show just, oh, I'm going to be preached to. But if anybody who's seen it knows we're making fun of it at the same time as we're touching on all these issues, but it's, it's, a, it's a funny, really smart show. And, um, and the actors, I mean, everybody involved in it, was, it was just amazing. And uh, so I, you know, I, I consider myself extremely fortunate to have experienced um, 